everybody. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, welcome to, as it says, Walking the Through Line, Navigating Free Speech on UCSB's campus. Uh, this evening, we will be working to define free speech and envision a campus that puts freedom of speech and student safety at the forefront. I'm Jackie Sedley, for those of you who don't know me. I use she, they pronouns, and I'm the internal news director for KCSB, which for those of you who don't know, is UCSB's non-commercial radio station. Yeah, and hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Yoshikoshi. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the external news director for KCSB. Now, before we get started, we would like to clarify the mission and structure of this event. This is not meant to be a debate and each of our panelists equally value both free speech and the safety of students on UCSB's campus and will be speaking both on behalf of their organizations and their own individual beliefs. We're here to provide a space to work together, not against each other, and we believe that all panelists and audience members can respect the diverse ideas being discussed. Um, and before we get started, we would like to take some time to read some land acknowledgments. We ask you to join us in acknowledging the Chumash peoples, their elders, both past and present, as well as their future generations. As a media organization, we would like to further acknowledge our commitment to providing a platform for underrepresented voices and perspectives with the aim of expanding knowledge and understanding and open up avenues of dialogue between all people. All right, and with that, just one final statement before we get started. This event is being recorded audio-wise, so just know that any audience participation will be documented. All right, so we will now begin with our hour-long panel facilitated by the two of us. After the panel is over, like I alluded to, all of you will have 30 minutes to ask any questions, and we will invite you to do so when the time comes. But for now, let's start with brief introductions. So we're going to go down the line here and have you all state your uh, first and last name, pronouns, your title or affiliation with a campus department or organization, and what you might be known for around here. So we're going to start with you. Um, the mic, you just... Hi. Hi, all. I'm Anushika Halder. My pronouns are she, they. And I'm co-chair of AS Trans and Queer Commission, which, if you don't know, is Associated Students Group for uh, Queer and Trans Student Advocacy. So what you might know our group for is putting on Pride events in spring quarter, funding a bunch of student orgs, including queer and trans student orgs and the RCSGD, and just general advocacy and outreach. And you might know me for that, as well as being a student senator in past years and general campus advocacy. All right, hi guys, my name is Julia Tamori. I am one of the co-directors for UCSB Students for Reproductive Justice. Um, we are a subcommittee of the AS Human Rights Board in addition to being a California chapter of URGE, which stands for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and our organization is primarily concerned with um, identifying and addressing structural inequities related to reproductive justice on campus through organization, mobilization, and education. Um, and we are known for doing quarterly condom fairies where we disseminate a variety of different resources, including condoms, but um, also things like emergency contraceptive. Um, and we've also established the reproductive justice programming money at Student Health 
which is a $24,000 fund available for students to use to fund um, any services they may, they may need, regardless of insurance coverage. So yeah, I'm super excited to be here and to hear from everybody here. Thank you, and just a reminder to, to eat the mic a little bit, just a little bit closer for all of you. Thank you. <laughs> my name is Daniel Linz. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Communication. My area of study is uh, psychology, sociology, communication, and law. And I teach a course on the First Amendment um, to the US Constitution, a course that I entitled Freedom of Speech. Um, I'm here to learn probably more than to um, speak, actually, because as I have um, been introduced to various panel members, panelists, I've realized that they know far more than me. Um, I also have done, over the years, uh, a lot of consulting with regard to freedom of speech issues. I, my area is, has been, for many years, sexual assault and uh, pornography and um, have looked at those issues in terms of community responses to sexually explicit materials. And I guess I'm known for um, maybe being a loud mouth of some sort in the Department of Communication. Um, and thank you, uh, Jackie and Jennifer, for inviting me. Absolutely, thank you for being here. No, there we go, hi. Um, hi, my name is Jenna Heather. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in the history department. Um, I specialize in legal history, and I also was one of the two campus representatives to the UAW 2865 bargaining team. So y'all probably know me from you not getting grades in fall quarter. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, hi, I'm Rick Benjamin, um, he, him pronouns, and I teach in, my home department here is in comparative literature and environmental studies, but I teach a range of classes, um, poetry and community, and um, reimagining social change, juvenile justice, wild literature in the urban landscape and environmental studies, and yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Good evening, everyone. My name is Devonshi Tomar. My pronouns are she, her. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I am the chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Daily Nexus. And in essence, what the Daily Nexus does or hopes to do is document and publish news regarding UCSB or the Isla Vista community or the Santa Barbara community at large. Um, and what that requires of us is to be able to be journalists and by extension, I think, historians. And what that encompasses is understanding the perspectives that are required to reflect that history accurately and sensitively. Um, so yeah, that's sort of my job or what I hope to facilitate as chair for the Daily Nexus and what our journalists aim to do as well. Um, very excited to be included amongst um, all these incredible individuals in this panel, so thank you very much. Thank you all so much for being here. You introduced yourselves better than I could have, so I appreciate that. I also wanted to mention that uh, Dr. Muriel Miller-Young was going to be here, but she had an unexpected emergency and had to step away. Thankfully, Devonshi was able to step up in her place, so thank you for that. All right, and to get started, uh, we this is a question open to all of you, but how would each of you, in your own words, define or describe free speech as a concept? 
I know that's a broad question. If anyone wants to begin. Hello. That's what I want to say. Hello. Um, for me, I can't describe it as a concept without contextualizing it. So I was thinking about this earlier today that for me, free speech always occurs in a context. So I was thinking of Sandra Bland, for example, in 2015 in Prairie View, uh, Texas, driving to her first day of work at the historically black college and university that she had graduated from. I imagine she was really excited. She's being tailgated by a cop. Um, she decides that maybe she should move over, and so she moves over to the right, and when he gets to her door, he says that she didn't use her turn signal when she got over to the right. And that situation, as you know, escalated, and she was told to get out of her car. And when she said, actually, you have no probable cause, being someone who knew her legal rights, um, the police officer decided that she was being disrespectful. And so for me, that already defines free speech, which is to say, it depends on who you are. If you're driving while black in this country frequently, you do not have the same free speech rights as someone who's white, for example. That's just a fact. And so, and that's just one example of what I mean by contextualizing free speech, but because I can't talk about it conceptually in any sort of way that's not informed by a particular context. Same thing is true of reproductive rights for me. Um, the same thing is true of queer and transgender rights for me. Um, it, when we're living in a world in which transgender rights are no longer a given in the state of Florida, and every single day rights are being rolled back, you've determined who's able to speak and who's not. Um, when 400 books are, have already been banned, you're saying who can express what and what's available to learn in school. Though these are free speech rights and contexts. And so for me, you can't separate them. Thank you for starting us off with that. Um, because I also want to think about context, because for me, again, as a legal historian and proud law school dropout, um, free speech is a balancing test. Um, it has to be. There, this summer, I'm teaching um, History 142, which is US legal and constitutional history. My first lecture is about the context that produced the Constitution and produced the Bill of Rights. And with freedom of speech, I find it really important to remember the context that produced it was one of um, anti-sedition laws and people getting locked up for, for challenging colonial rule. And you're certainly not going to hear me simp for the Founding Fathers. That's not a thing that's going to happen. But I do think it's important to note the specific governmental context of the First Amendment. You have the right to criticize your government. You have the right to praise your government. You have the right to make your political opinions known. You do not have the right to the respect of everyone who hears you. And I think that that part can, can get lost. 
um, sometimes. So I do think that there is a balance to, like when I think about free speech, there's a balance to be had between individual expression and the social good. Thank you for that. Would any other panelists like to add how they would define free speech? I thought about my answer. <laughs> um, I think at the Nexus and as journalists, something that is impressed upon all of us is that news reporters are conduits of free speech. Um, whether it is an article that you're choosing to write, whether it's an opinion or a news article, but also the people that you interview, making sure that you have a knowledge of the perspectives that comprise a story that you're writing and making sure that what you are publishing is something that is representative of all of those perspectives. Um, I think the way that we sort of see free speech is making sure that you are setting aside your beliefs on a certain issue in order to represent an issue objectively, um, whether it comes to publication about protests or if it comes to issues of reproductive rights, um, things like that. Um, Setting aside your personal beliefs and having first and foremost a responsibility as a journalist to make sure that the perspectives that affect the article that you're writing are the ones that are illustrated. I think it's a responsibility to accuracy and representing history correctly. Um, I, I, I think that's what it is. And making sure that you understand the spaces where you can represent your opinions um, in the opinion section, making sure they don't bleed into um, the, I guess, objective, more factual reporting style. Um, and I think also making sure that through doing that, you are not alienating the reader and making them feel as if, I guess, what they believe is being limited um, by the news source that they are ideally represented by on campus. Thank you for turning that on. Um, I um, I like your legal response um, because I think that freedom of speech is a legal myth. I think that the idea is that we have the ability to communicate freely, but really, um, as I have studied legal precepts in this area for many years, um, my freedom of speech class is about all the ways in which the law actually limits our speech and the degree to which um, we are constrained in social situations, as Rick is pointing out, but legally um, as well. So that freedom of speech becomes not only a matter of context, um, it becomes a matter of, what, of legal boundaries. And as a result of that, I think we are continually in the United States engaged in legal battles and actual battles um, that may involve um, a uh, physical confrontation. And here, I, I, if I could just make a shout out um, for the uh, Speech Matters uh, website and the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. It's run by a person by the name of Michelle Deutschman um, and um, it is UC's attempt at a national center dealing primarily with the law and freedom of speech. Um, and so it's, it's a myth in the sense that it doesn't really exist and it's continually litigated and fought about. Um, and 
the UC system, I think, is always entangled in a kind of legal um, debate, as well as I mentioned before, a physical, um, often uh, altercation. And here, I, I, I would just bring up what happened um, in Davis last fall. I don't know that you're familiar um, with those events. Maybe um, some are. But um, this past fall, there was a registered group at UC Davis called Turning Point USA. And they invited a speaker by the name of Stephen Davis, known as Mega Hulk, um, to campus, to speak on campus. And in response, students and community members um, outside the event um, were uh, protesting, which caused counter-protesters wearing Proud Boy t-shirts um, to show up. And then um, the protests evolved in, into violence, um, that the, the um, students were eventually punched and pepper sprayed, um, and the UC Davis um, administration canceled um, the event. So I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a myth that we can speak freely, and that myth is enshrined um, in kind of American lore, but it's continually bounded by both law and, and we might say by physical violence as well. All right, thank you for that. I think for the sake of time, we'll move on to the next question, but you can absolutely include your own definitions of free speech in your next answers. Yeah, and so all of you posed a lot of great examples that sparked a bigger conversation about the role of academic institutions like UCSB in policing rhetoric, as well as vetting those who come on and off campus with intentions to spread their messages. Um, this question is also open to everyone on the panel. Should UCSB more closely examine who comes onto campus and what their intentions are, or is that not their responsibility? Well, I think as many of the panelists here expressed really eloquently, Free speech does not exist without context. It does not exist in a vacuum. It is constantly contested. And part of freedom of speech is recognizing where the line between that and hate speech exists. And the safety of who is being subjected to a venue and to what's being expressed within it. That being said, I think there's a fundamental responsibility to see who's being invited into a space um, there are also limits to that, right? Um, censorship is a huge problem. I think even if there are certain speakers or groups that we disapprove of, it's still important to give them entrance to express themselves because one, there are a lot of groups, like um, I'm thinking of Charlie Kirk and Turning Point, who feed off of students being angry, um, feeding off not being allowed access to spaces. One of the most powerful things you can do for groups like that is allow them to come and to not engage. Um, and I think that's really important to recognize. But UCSB does have a fundamental responsibility, I think, to consider who is being invited and who students are comfortable with and okay with. Um, there's a lot of nuance and context to that, but I think that is a balancing act that they need to consider. Thank you for that. Great. All right, thank you for that. Um, I, 
So I, I earned my master's degree at the University of Washington, and the year before I started at the University of Washington, um, Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak on that campus um, by the College Republicans. And a thing that's important to note about the um, UW College Republicans is that they are so far right that they have been disavowed by the National College Republicans, which I actually didn't know is a thing that could happen. Um, when Milo came to campus, similar to the situation at Davis, um, he was protested, and then there were counter-protesters, and one of the counter-protesters shot one of the protesters in the stomach, a uh, University of Washington junior. Um, he survived, um, mashallah, but um, this came back up last year when Similarly, TPUSA was invited by the College Republicans uh, to speak on that campus, and the institutional memory of a student getting shot protesting uh, a Nazi speaking on campus um, was mobilized to think that maybe this wasn't <laughs> the best idea considering the precedent. And ultimately, the University of Washington proceeded to hold the event, and like was suggested, um, the community response was to do nothing, to not show up, to not counter protest. And I think that that also points to the idea that the freedom of speech also includes the freedom to shut up on occasion. And at, I, was, I was really disappointed that, that the speaker was allowed at all because I, in my opinion, the university had failed to protect the physical safety of its student. So this gets into a really interesting gray area, and it's that free speech is protected unless there's a threat to somebody's life, for example. But as I was sort of noting earlier, your interpretation of when your life is being threatened is, again, highly subjective and contextualized. And so these, you know, it's like, I like what Anushka said very much. But what I also think is that we have a responsibility as community members to each other to observe certain values of beloved community, for example, which I try to observe all the time. You know, I brought, I, when I had a hand in being with three ch kids in my house, like our family sort of community rule was, you may not use language against anyone. That's clearly not the country we're living in right now. But if I had to sort of define what a community context where free speech looks like, it's try not to engage in hateful speech around other people who might be injured and hurt by what you're saying. And so, and this is gonna date me, so I'm sorry, but I was also thinking today about um, Mario Cuomo when he was governor of the state of New York, used to do this thing called Ask the Governor. And he was asked a question, you know, somebody called in and said, you're allowing a pro-choice march in New York City this weekend and you're not showing up as a counter demonstrator. Why is that? And he said two things which really interested me at the time and one was, look, I'm a, I'm a devout Catholic and so personally, I don't believe in abortion, but that's, you know, my choice, and I would never infringe upon anybody else's choice to make an opposite decision. Furthermore, I don't think that when people are expressing themselves in the street that you necessarily have a responsibility to show up and contest what they're saying. 
the respectable thing to do is to let them speak freely. Sometimes counter demonstrations have a deleterious effect on people's right to do that. And again, it goes to, you know, what do you feel threatened by? And so to me, this is kind of like waffly. I mean, we, ha I, we have these conversations all the time and it's why we do allow certain people on campus and then suddenly you're into a situation like what happened at UC Davis. If it were up to me, actually, if we just did the work of establishing what our community values are going to be, we'd always know when that line was being crossed. And then we'd say, excuse me, you're no longer welcome here because you're no longer being a good guest or community member. Thank you. Um, I, you know, Rick, I think you make a really good point. Um, that I think the university, and I took just your question to be about what is the university's response to the possibility of controversial speakers. And in, in teaching my course on the First Amendment, I often find that um, students are uh, put off by um, the notion of guarantees of freedom of speech um, it, to the extent that they exist in United States law. People are often surprised that the Supreme Court, for example, is never defined, nor is it illegal to engage in hate speech. And so people often say to me, well, why is that the case? And surely the university shouldn't allow um, people that are engaged in hateful comments um, to come here and then to spew whatever it is that they are interested in saying. On the other hand, the university, I don't think, does a service to students or to communities on campus because the response is often an, an intrinsically legal one, whereby the university throws up their hands, in effect, and says, well, we have to do this. We have to guarantee, as a result of a, a, a legitimate student group asking for a speaker to join us or to talk to us, we have to guarantee that there is a sense of viewpoint neutrality and that this speaker has the right um, to speak. What we don't do oftentimes, I don't think at the university, is what you're suggesting, Rick, which is to lead with our values and then to supplement with the law. So our values should be respect for um, all communities on campus and a lack of endorsement of the message that the hateful speaker is bringing. But then to mention that um, the law, as it stands right now with regard to universities, requires that we bring um, this speaker to campus. And it's not the case that because we bring this speaker to campus um, that we endorse that speaker's views. And very often what I find among people that I talk to and students that I often work with um, is that they believe that the very presence of that individual on campus is an endorsement by the administration of that point of view or the, the, the hateful rhetoric that is, uh, that is being communicated. That's not the case as far as I can tell, although we could have a discussion about the degree to which it's legitimized and endorsed by its mere presence um, at the university. But what I find is if we lead with values and then mention the law, that's oftentimes a much better way to approach the controversies associated with um, controversial speech on campus. 
Thank you so much for all of that. We're gonna go straight into our next question because it connects well. Uh, it obviously sounds like uh, some of you believe that there is a line between fostering intellectual diversity through free speech and intentionally or unintentionally allowing hate speech. So this is a question for you, Anushika. You alluded to this topic. But back in March, right-wing political pundit Charlie Kirk came to campus. He's the founder of the conservative nonprofit Turning Point USA, which we've already mentioned. And he is notorious for his staunch conservative viewpoints. He has said things like transgender people are, quote, delusional, that systemic racism doesn't exist, and many more takes that are considered quite controversial. Uh, his discussion on campus sparked outrage and fear among many students, but was defended by some of his supporters in the name of the First Amendment and free speech. So as the chair for the Trans and Queer Commission, how did you feel about his presence at UCSB? I know you talked on this a little bit already. Well, <coughs> you know, personally, I wasn't excited or happy <coughs> to have someone who thinks of me and so many of my chosen family and peers as fundamentally wrong, fundamentally incorrect, immoral, threatens their belief system. Um, but as somebody who has to deal with school administration and AS rules, I also know <laughs> that there's no way around that. Um, and if my group can put on event after event championing our rights and needs and advocacy and bring one of the biggest drag queens and have them perform in Campbell Hall and have school outline exactly how to do that, I knew that that also meant Charlie Kirk had to be allowed on campus. I also knew that the student body was not gonna be happy about it. And that despite the fact that I know that people in administration aren't necessarily happy with what was happening, they couldn't really feel like they could do anything about it legally. And I think our reaction sort of was is, in times like that, we can recognize legally what has to happen and personally align ourselves and organize differently. I know there were students who are organizing, and I know like events that we are putting on are our ways of speaking against that, even when legally and student code-wise we can't do anything at all. Um, those are our ways of standing up to that and recognizing that if something has to happen, um, again, our existence and continuing ways of advocacy and organizing our own free speech is the response that we can manage to that. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, this question is for Julia um, on the topic of groups that come onto campus. Your organization uh, put out a statement regarding the anti-choice group who had been tabling in the Arbor last month um, with graphic signs and misinformation about abortions. Do you believe those individuals should have been removed from campus? Um, personally, I do think so, yes. Just because from what I was told um, by, we had a lot of community members and students reach out to us via social media after that event asking questions about where that group came from and what the university was doing in response and what we as an organization were going to do in response. Um, and there was a question at one point if we should go counter protest by tabling next to them and disseminating our own information to try and combat some of what they were doing. Um, but ultimately we actually were advised not to because of the potential for it to escalate further. So um, yes, my answer is I think they should have been removed because um, 
they were getting pretty in the faces of the people that were engaging with them. They were threatening arrests if anybody came too close to them. And um, some of the pamphlets they were handing out were advancing some really harmful rhetoric in relation to um, sexual assault and issues of that nature. So um, honestly, I do think that they were really kind of inciting violence against a lot of people and for that reason, they shouldn't have been allowed to continue or at least not come for a second day in a row. Yes, Dan. Um, it, the fact that you were advised not to counter protest is interesting to me. But who advised you not to counter protest? So I mentioned earlier, we're one of, uh, we're part of two main organizations. One is AS and the other is an external organization called Urge. Um, and our state organizer told us that if we felt that we were um, being threatened by them, that we should not um, engage and present like next to them. So that was who it was. Well, that's in interesting, and I thoroughly disagree with that. I, I think that the university's responsibility is, in fact, to always e either fund or support in some way possible counter-protests. And to, and to provide a forum for that counter-protest. Um, that's, in fact, our mission is to provide um, information or knowledge on both sides of a particular issue. I would never not counter-protest. And, and of course, you have to be very sensitive to the needs of your community so that if it's possible, get information out to those groups that are gonna be particularly um, negatively affected by what is going to be said um, so that they can perhaps uh, have mental health or other services immediately available. You have to, to have a, an, a relationship with the administration that allows you to communicate with them in real time about the possibility of something going wrong or the possibility of some sort of violent confrontation, which means that you have to be in, in constant administrative contact with the administration. And I might add, as part of AS, uh, you need to be in contact with the chancellor on a regular basis, a monthly meeting whereby these kinds of issues regarding freedom of speech are discussed, but that there should always be a counter protest and there should always be a, a space for a, um, a group of students to um, voice opinions that are contrary to whatever hateful rhetoric you think is, is being propagated on campus. And we did end up creating the space, albeit like through social media, we just chose not to physically engage with them. And then to my knowledge, it was brought forward. I wasn't the one who launched the complaint, but it was reported to the Office of Student Conduct. I'm just not sure where the escalation went beyond that. Thank you, I appreciate that dialogue. If the university were to choose to bar individuals like that from campus, what would you see as the consequences to that? That can be to Julia or any of you. And would it be worth it? Do you think it would be worth it to take steps to bar or remove individuals like Charlie Kirk or like these anti-choice protesters from campus? I think what was said earlier um, in one of the previous questions about there being a certain line and certain responsibility of the university to vet these people really kind of comes to the forefront of this question because um, I don't know, I, ju I 
don't know that I'm the most qualified to actually answer this one, but I do think that uh, the university does have a certain responsibility to vet people, and um, I think there should be transparency among like why they would choose to bar someone, but perhaps someone else could elaborate. And so moving on. Oh, did you have a question? No, I just wanted to pick up on Julia's invitation if, if we have time. So thank you. So um, I, I just, I want to reference something that happened on this campus a few months ago. Um, some students of Arab descent, I believe Palestinian descent specifically wrote on a whiteboard in an empty classroom, or ironically, pardon my language, um, fuck Israel and fuck Zionism. And those students are currently up on um, misconduct charges for anti-Semitism. To me, this is the opposite of the situation indi indicated here by Julia. Um, for one, like, <laughs> these students are expressing a political opinion about their homeland. And they did not say anything about Judaism as a religion, Jewish people in general. They made a statement implicating what they see as the violence of a particular settler colonial nation state. This is supposed to be the type of speech that the First Amendment exists to protect. And the fact that these students, who certainly did not harm anyone, they did not threaten anyone's physical safety, they wrote words on an empty whiteboard in an unused classroom. This is, I believe, evidence that the university has the power to name speech as violent as and as harmful and to act accordingly, and the university makes calculated decisions on when to do so and when to decline to do so. So this conversation is, and we, we were invited at the outset to think about context, this conversation has to be grounded in the power of the institution that is host to the speech because it is also a matter of speech, how the institution responds. And I am of the opinion that expressing political opposition to a settler colonial nation state is protected speech and deliberately misconstruing that political statement as something it's not, which is anti-Semitism, should not be protected speech. Hot take. I appreciate that. If you can maintain that microphone, I have another question for you, Jana. Um, so this is a bit of a segue back into your roots in unionization, in the union. So freedom of speech is a huge component historically, right, in fights for unionization and fair treatment in the workplace. As a union representative, can you explain the role that the First Amendment played in the academic worker strike that occurred throughout fall quarter on campus? Sorry, it's just like the worst time of my life. Um, okay, <laughs> so I think that a thing that we spent a lot of our time and a lot of our energy doing was making sure that a clear narrative about our political and economic conditions was widely known. And I also just want to take a moment to thank Rosie, who's present here for her work in Undergraduates for COLA, which was really, really helpful in our political communications to our, our undergraduate colleagues. And um, the ability that we had to counteract the university strike-breaking messaging was really important. I'm sure that a lot of you 
um, we're told that we were on strike because we don't care about you or because um, we are whiny privileged babies doing whiny privileged baby things by drawing chalk stuff in the arbor. And um, I'm a whiny privileged baby, but for other reasons, not this one. And I think that the ability to speak plainly about your material conditions, the, the pithy phrase is speak truth to power, um, is a critical part of solidarity building, it's a critical part of strengthening political movements. And we just had to contend with the fact that <laughs> that the university has a lot of those same rights and was able to do things like motivate its own its own speech to, to counteract us. And like, I had never expected a critical part of my life to involve talking to reporters, but suddenly that was a thing that was happening to me. And I would read the stories after the fact and read that, because you know these reporters had done their due diligence and had reached out to university officials and quoted them as well who were saying things like, we are offering a fair contract. It's like, my brother in Christ, my rent is 49% of my income. <laughs> and like, like Anushka was, was saying earlier, you, you just gotta speak louder and speak better and organize better, and that's just kind of the way that it works. Um, and like also, my, a thing that I said during the strike more than once was, and again, I'm about to say a bad word, fuck Henry Yang and his half million dollar salary. And that's rude, certainly, <laughs> but it was a thing that I had the right to say. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, on that topic of like expression, um, this is a question for Rick. In addition to teaching, you're also an esteemed poet and writer. Um, how does free speech play an expression through art and literature? And how much freedom do you think artists currently have on UCSB's campus in that regard? Um, on this campus, I think we're fine. Um, I'm a poet, and Lucille Clifton, my friend, used to say all the time that one of the great things about poetry is that it flies under the radar. Somebody would say to her, don't you think poetry should be more widely circulated? And she'd be like, no, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> Nobody ever censors my books. And, um, and Lucille wrote some really controversial poems. Um, but I would not make that statement for this nation state in general. Like, you've noticed, right, that really fine artists are being censored right and left at the moment in this country under the guise of what we should not be exposing our young people to in their learning. And this is like curious, like when people like Toni Morrison's books are being banned and she's one of the best American writers, period, and you're banning her books because you're afraid of what they're suggesting, which is to say American history, you've got to really stand up and say that's wrong. When a country finds it more difficult to encounter and account for the truth of its history and is afraid of doing that, and so starts to censor all the people who are telling the truth, you are in a really bad situation. So, I mean, it, it, I don't feel personally like I can't talk about what I want to write about. I, I write about what I want to all the time. Sometimes people don't like it, that's their prerogative. But at this moment, I am not complacent in any way about what I'm 
uh, what I'm encouraged to do as a teacher, as somebody who is determined and committed to learning, it's like we do not protect people by not teaching them what's true. And as far as I can tell, what's happening in Florida, and by the way, DeSantis declared today. So, and when he declared, he bragged about the fact that he had to because the Florida model needs to be circulated all over the country. Well, that's bad news for the rest of us because the Florida model right now is to basically ban anything that's the truth that involves learning about the history of this country. And whether it's somebody being afraid that a kid will feel ashamed about their whiteness in a classroom because the book is written about black history, that's insane. Like, I think we need to call this out for the insanity that it is. And those comments transition really well into our next question that will also kind of continue that topic. So there's another trend that we can track throughout the course of history with regard to counterculture movements and civil unrest in times where people of color or people from the LGBTQ plus community, for instance, were speaking up against discrimination, inequality, it could be argued that those voices made people in power, like you're referencing, feel unsafe or uncomfortable. So that begs the question for any of you, at what point does free speech become objectively unsafe for a population like students at UCSB? Does it ever become objectively unsafe? Of course it does. Um, but that is one element, I think, of the law with regard to, and constitutional analysis with regard to freedom of speech. The possibility of that dangerousness or lack of safety is not, has not, often been um, an appropriate restriction on um, the possibility of people speaking out no matter what their viewpoint. Uh, there is a kind of well-developed legal doctrine that goes back to incidents like Nazis protest, uh, Nazis um, <coughs> rallying in Skokie, Illinois, and possible protests or violent uh, confrontations between residents and Nazis there, residents who were survivors often of the Holocaust. And the Supreme Court has said um, that, that the possibility of that kind of outbreak should not be considered as the determining force in whether or not uh, someone should be permitted to speak out, no matter how repellent the views. So I, I, I think that there's a, a legal precedent in the First Amendment, and I could be wrong, and I, I, I could stand correct, the correction, I'm sure, um, that does not justify the possibility of repressing speech, no matter how abhorrent, uh, because of the possibility of disorder or violence. Am I wrong? Well, legally, you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater. Well, actually, you cannot falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. Um, shouting fire is okay if the theater's on fire. But the, 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 the legal, I think, um, the development of legal cases that, that I know about suggests that the, th the possible threat of violence or disruption does not become a, a, a legitimate constitutional basis for repressing speech. So, uh, I mean, my, I'm sorry, my, my short answer to the question is, of course, 
it's always dangerous um, to speak out, um, but that's something that we live with. I want to I want to go back to something in in the original question, which I'm sure you added on purpose. Um, nothing is ever objectively anything. <laughs> that's that's not that's not real. So um, example. There was this thing that started happening in the 70s in California where a group of individuals would buy very high-powered firearms and just start driving around the streets of their town. And occasionally they would see something they wouldn't like. They would get out of their car with their guns and they would talk to the people who were doing the stuff they didn't like to see. Now I'm saying this. I'm seeing a nod. I think you know where I'm going with this. But that by itself doesn't sound great. It sounds really dangerous and it sounds like the expression that these people are engaging in is inherently unsafe. Plot twist, the people who were doing it were the Black Panthers, and when they were driving around with these guns, they were stopping cops who were pulling over black motorists, they were getting out of their car, and they were reciting California and Oakland statutes uh, to inform the black motorist of their rights. And this irritated so many people that your boy Ronald Reagan passed one of the harshest and most comprehensive gun ownership restriction laws in the country. And so, again, nothing is ever objectively anything. It is probably what the Panthers were doing in that moment was more dangerous to them than it was to anybody else, but it was construed as a threat to the officers of the Oakland PD, many of whom were white, as such a threat that now there's gun legislation because we don't want black people owning guns and exercising their political speech rights in this way. And I think this speaks to something that you were saying earlier about how the most important thing to consider always <laughs> is context. Would, I, would anyone else like to add to that? So what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned Sandra Bland, and certainly any person of color in this country knows that you cannot speak your mind when you're sitting in your car seat and you've been pulled over by the cops. Because if you do, your life may be threatened. So what does that mean about free speech? Like I'm constantly thinking about these things. It's like we all are for dissent and we all support it until we're actually speaking our mind at our wheel and we know our rights. By the way, I love the example of the Black Panthers because Exactly, they were, they were schooling people in what their rights were, that they, did, for, for instance, did not need to get out of their car unless there was probable cause. You can't just order somebody out of their car. And so, yes, again, context. By the way, Sandra Bland's life was being threatened. She did die. And, you know, and the circumstances are very muddied around it. But if she'd never gotten out of her car, which is to say she was forced out of her car, she was dragged out of her car, she was threatened with being tased. And it's like, by the way, that police officer had no right to squelch her right to say no. So I feel really conflicted about that in the sense of like, I and several of my friends as advocates and activists have absolutely faced violence for expressing our political opinions. I remember the first time as a student senator I expressed a political opinion, I was doxxed by an alt-right group. So very much I understand what can come with that. And as a brown student on campus, when I see um, groups like the 
pro-life protesters splashing incredibly graphic images, getting in people's faces, threatening violence. I'm reminded that the university is willing in some sense to condone that and yet still have cops on campus that police black and brown students. So my response to that is, again, free speech is very complicated. It is contextual and the legal limitations make the enforcing of it very difficult. Um, but I think, again, if we, as we've discussed on this panel, are able to lead value first and make it very clear what we condone and are okay with, I think that would make it more palatable and that would solve some of the safety issues for our students. Because a lot of us understand what comes with free speech. We understand that if we are to express what we want to express, we also have to sometimes accept what people contrary to that are going to express. What we want to see, I think, is an acknowledgement of what we are entitled to, which is feeling safe, respected, and seen. And I think what this past year has brought up is that we don't, and that's what we are sort of demanding and want to see when it comes to free speech. Recognizing the legal limitations, recognizing it does not occur in a vacuum, and regardless of that, that we are allowed to implement our own context and advocate the way we should be allowed to. Yeah. Um, we're running a little short on time, so we're going to move on to the next question. Um, this is still open to all of you, but um, how can we still honor free speech on campus while also acknowledging that some speech is hate speech? And this will be our final question for the panel. I think when it comes to being a reporter, you have this responsibility, I guess, to make sure that you are representing a situation, an issue, an event on campus with as wide of, I guess, a spectrum as possible when it comes to opinions and perspectives um, and people that exist there. I know a lot of our reporters, when it comes to providing those platforms, feel uncomfortable with having to make the decision of who to speak to, who to interview, how to interview them. And I also know that there are reporters who specifically feel uncomfortable talking about issues when it comes to the divestment issue at UCSB or when it comes to, I think, the Israel-Palestine conflict in general or when it comes to queer um, rights or when it comes to reproductive rights. There is a fear that if they touch these topics and they report on these topics, they will get doxxed. Um, if they don't talk about, if they don't approach their article in a way that is as holistic as possible, um, there will be accusations that we are biased in our journalism. There will be accusations that we don't train our reporters to be as objective as possible. Um, and so having to incorporate the DEI perspective into that requires, I guess, education and also building a sort of sense of community within the Nexus staff about making sure that people feel comfortable and that there is, I guess, I think the thing with being a newspaper at UCSB is we have to our benefit that we're entirely student run and that we're independent and we can essentially do whatever we want. That is a huge responsibility. We are not associated with AS, for example. And with that and with that freedom, we've had discussions about how do we sort of rebuild the reputation and make sure that the Daily Nexus is seen as a source of news and information that is as accurate, objective, and also compassionate as possible. We have a history that is sort of stymied by frat bros who have written terrible things in the opinion section years and years ago, and so we're sort of rebuilding a trust within the community. And 
I think in order to rebuild that trust and make sure that people feel safe and comfortable talking to us is constantly working on what representing people and their opinions looks like and making sure that we are, I guess, unbiased when it comes to representing the opinions that come to us. But I think it was, I think it was Anushka who said something before of making sure that we have clarified what our ethics are, what we believe is central to the kind of journalism we want to promote and to create. Um, so we have discussions about what does journalistic ethics look like, how does that apply to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Each of our sections has a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement that all of our writers are briefed on. Um, and I think when it comes to what free speech is and if it's objectively unsafe, um, I think anything that you say, there's sort of an assumption of risk that what you say might be something that people disagree with, that when it comes to being a reporter, the way that you represent a situation or even an opinion article that you write, there will be people that disagree with it, but our editors, our writers, and everyone is trained to make sure that, I guess, have an assumption that people are operating from a position of compassion um, and giving people that benefit of the doubt until it's proved otherwise. Um, I think that has been a sort of guiding principle for a lot of journalists and hopefully is something we've been able to cultivate through our newspaper. Um, but yeah, I, that, that's what I believe. Um, thank you for that. And that takes a lot of work. When um, Kimberly Crenshaw was here, and she's a law professor at um, UCLA and I think Emory. Um, but in any case, when she was here, she said at the end of her talk, I'm tired of hate mongers hiding behind free speech. And when a community takes the time to do the hard work of establishing what, it, what values it's going to hold to, then you have a check on it. And you know, for three years before the pandemic, I worked with multicultural fraternities on this campus around beloved community. And Willie Roman, who had been a president of a fraternity here and works in advising now here, um, and I worked really hard trying to establish with those orgs what beloved community was. We had, we drafted together um, the tenets through Martin Luther King's work, Bell Hooks's work, and Grace Lee Boggs's work, you know, so that everybody agreed, and all of those fraternity members agreed to live by those values. It meant that when somebody, when a brother, stepped over the line, they were called out, and appropriately so, and in several cases, suspended or kicked out of the organization because that's what the communities had decided were their values. But it takes a lot of work. By the way, it's high time that UCSB started this conversation institution-wide about what, you know, what we want our values of beloved community to be like. And I would suggest that that's what we're, where we should start. And we should work very hard together unpacking what that means. And then once having done so, we have a baseline for what we expect of community members. And when somebody crosses over the line, we call them out. Thank you for that. Does anyone have any final comments before we turn over to the Q&A in the audience? Yes, Dan, if you want to pass down the mic. Uh, thanks, and Rick, if I could add to that. It's not only that students have, um, <coughs> uh, should have um, a, a, uh, a moment to speak out, I think students have, if not a constitutional, an educational right to counter-protest and for those counter-protests to be funded um, and, in fact, guaranteed 
as a student forum each time for any speaker, but it's, uh, especially those instances where there is hate speech. That requires, however, that the university be engaged at administrative levels with AS. I don't know if it, this is a, something that AS mandates when they fund speakers, that in fact counter-protest safe and emotionally, um, uh, emotionally um, comforting uh, places for counter-protesters to reside. But in all fairness, and I love your emphasis on love, but it's a, it's a fairness issue, it's a justice issue, um, that, and there used to be something called the fairness doctrine um, when talking about media and First Amendment rights, there, in all fairness, you have a right to a counter-protest. You have a right to a safe space for a counter-protest, and I would go further to say that the university has a mandate, um, or should be mandated, to pay for that counter-protest. Thank you. Does anyone have any final comments on that topic before we turn it over? Um, <coughs> I personally, as somebody who's worked in the confines of UCSBAS and the institution, do not trust it to enact systemic change for free speech anytime soon for a variety of reasons, some of which I don't believe like the university needs to take full blame for. That being said, um, I fully believe in counter-protest, but also that counter-protest looks like a lot of different things. And sometimes that just looks like building community and safe spaces of joy. Um, one of my favorite events that happens every year is <coughs> excuse me, something called the Coming Out Monologues by the Resource Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Um, it's a space where queer and trans LGBTQ plus students gather and share stories and resilience. And it's spaces like that that remind me we as students have so much power, um, it's often diluted or reduced or dismissed um, by people who don't want us to think that we have it. Um, and it's hard work. I'm not gonna say that it's not because as someone who's been doing this for a long time, it absolutely is. But I think we have an imperative to share that labor. And if we're able to do so, we can create free speech that looks more like what we want it to. And we can, again, lead by values that point to who we're not going to accept or what we're not going to allow. And if we're able to do that, then like leading by joy first, we can diminish hate speech instead. I think that's the approach I would like to lead with and I try to lead with. Thank you so much. So that wraps up the panel portion of this conversation. So now we will have about 25 minutes for questions from the audience. Um, how this will work is that you will have one and a half minutes at maximum to speak. If you exceed that time, one of our two fellow lovely KCSB employees will lightly gesture from the aisles to indicate that your time is up. And if you continue to speak, they will gently move the microphone just so that everybody gets a fair chance to speak. Um, Nyla and Jack, can you just wave to the crowd so individuals who go up know who you are? They're both at the front. Um, anyone is Welcome to participate, however, when doing so, once again, just keep in mind that this is not a debate format, and we encourage you to reserve any debate-centric interactions for outside of this event. If conversations or responses grow contentious to the point of being no longer aligned with these goals, we will have to intervene. And
And again, this is not to limit speech. It's simply for the sake of time and making sure everyone has an equal chance to speak up and feel safe in doing so. Uh, we now invite you to walk up to the microphones at the end of either aisles um, and line up single file. And just as a reminder, these questions will be recorded. All right, wonderful. So we will start with the microphone over here. If you would like to walk up and ask your question now. Hello? Okay, I'm sorry if I'm not perfectly articulate. I'm honestly a little nervous. I usually never ask questions in panels like this, but... Could you speak just a little oh, closer sorry. to the microphone? I know Hello. it's a little short, just... Yeah. Um, there was some talk about uh, community values and how we should base free speech, at least in part, upon, you know, if when so we invite somebody into our community, if it fulfills our community values. But what I kind of fear is that what somebody like a Ron DeSantis in Florida is going to say about those community values, they're just going to say, well, we have our community values about upholding our good Christian traditions, and because of that, if you're a trans speaker or you're a minority speaker and you hold the minority opinion in our state, we're not going to allow you to speak. So I guess I was just wondering, it's more, when I think about free speech, it's more about rights, and it's like, you have the right to have and disseminate your ideas insofar as they're not pushing against other people's rights. So you can't, you know, do something like hate speech or like inciting violence that might, you know, cause somebody else's rights to be violated. And going back to uh, Dr. Hader, I, am I remember? Dr. Nothing, and it's oh. Heather, but thank Heather. you. Sorry. Um, about the example of the students that wrote, um, fuck Israel, fuck Zionism, you know, if there is any, uh, you know, pressing against the uh, Jewish community's rights, it's very little compared to the rights of um, the free speech there. And I can't help but wonder if that was another community that they had written. If they had written something like, um, fuck China, China oppresses Uyghur Muslims, would they have been suspended then? I, I kind of doubt that. So I guess where I would finally um, leave it off with is how does uh, fairness in free speech, like, uh, and giving everyone a fair opportunity um, reflect in free speech. Is free speech just everyone getting some minimum amount, like they're technically allowed to say or they're technically allowed to disseminate their information um, in a certain way, or does it have to be mostly fair? I mean, how does fairness play in? Because we touched upon the um, fa fairness doctrine at the end, but yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I will start. So um, this this is kind of one of what I said earlier, which is you can say whatever you want. You're not entitled to anybody's respect, and I think that there's a that there's often a conflation with like I can say whatever I want. Therefore, you have to listen to me and you have to treat me with politeness after I have said something so anathema to who you are as a as a person that um, that it that it shakes a lot of things that that you believe in. So, insofar as Ron DeSantis and, and whoever, and I also just think it's very funny that Twitter crashed while he was announcing over Twitter Live, so Twitter doesn't want Ron DeSantis to have free speech, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Ron DeSantis is overlooking the fact that his community in Florida includes a lot of queer people and a lot of black people and a lot of Latinx people and a lot of Jewish people as well, and like, I, I don't, this is why you cannot shout fire in an admittedly not on fire theater is that you you cannot deliberately incite violence and I think that to reference the the Crenshaw line that you brought up earlier often I think free speech is the last defense of the asshole like I'm I'm sorry but 
that a lot of people say something that they know is hateful and then they use free speech as a defense. And I think that we just gotta stop giving those people the benefit of the doubt. And speaking of free speech, at, while this is happening, while we're protecting Ron DeSantis's rights to say all of these things, to enact all of these laws, um, to e executive order after executive order, the state of Florida and many other states are rolling back things like voters' rights, and this is First Amendment too, you know, the expression in a democracy of dissent and, you know, and the right to vote, you know, it's like we used to have a Voting Rights Act for that reason. And also, states are now rolling back or, or changing the requirements for ref referenda so that popular votes cannot happen. And I completely agree with what you just said about the state of Florida representing all of these people who are not right now being able to speak um, and represent their rights in the state because when it, when it comes down to it, Florida's also, you know, saying, oh, by the way, you need now this many signatures on a petition in order to get a referendum on the ballot. That's the popular vote of a state in order to check the kind of fascism that's going on in that state. So that's free speech as well. Thank you. We're going to move on to the next question just for the sake of time. Yeah, I had no idea that he banned a Toni Morrison book. I mean, that is crazy if that's <laughs> true. I could not. I, that's shocking. Thank you. Thank you. All right, your next question here. Just make sure to talk directly into the mic if possible. Can you hear me? Yes, a little closer even. Okay. Perfect. Um, thank you all for being here. My question was on the idea of a community establishing its own values as well, but of a, from a different uh, interpretation slightly. Not about somebody like Ron DeSantis, uh, how he might co-opt it, but I think that dissenters have a very valuable role in any community, especially on a campus community. So. I think I genuinely do agree to some extent with the idea that a community establishing its own values will minimize some of the, the really debilitating conflicts we have throughout the United States, especially on campuses. But what role do dissenters play in a community that has firmly established its own values? How do we, how do we protect that value, essentially? Is that directed to me? Anyone, but yeah, I, was, I got it from your idea. Well. Well, first of all, I completely agree with you that dissent is extremely important. But I don't know that we're living in that country right now. Like, the freedom to dissent in this country right now is being threatened all the time and every single day. So, you know, it's like, yes, I absolutely 100% agree with the idea of dissent. But we also have, you know, a Supreme Court that, that has decided that part of protecting the First Amendment is allowing all corporations to give as much money as they want to for campaign finance, as if you know, individuals and corporations are the same. Money talks. By the way, do you notice that poor people have the same voice? And this is where I think context is really important. It's like, what is the nature of dissent when somebody can't express it? That would be my question back. Thank right. you. Thank you. All right, we will now take a question from this side of the stage. Again, just remember to speak very directly into the microphone. Cool. Hello, my name is Holly, and I was going to actually ask about the Citizens United case that deemed that corporations were people. And I learned in my media and politics class that as a result of that, there's been a lot of money poured into politics, and negative ad campaigns have increased a lot because of this like diffusion of responsibility and because negativity makes more money um, and just grabs more attention in campaigns. So my question to you is whether that 
is a place where free speech has gone wrong in the sense that it's being used to hinder a truly egalitarian democracy where free speech means that everybody gets to speak. What do you think about that? I think some of the panelists have touched upon this and if we're going back to the initial question of what free speech is, ideally it is about equity, right? Access. And also part of that rec is recognizing that why we're saying free speech doesn't like truly exist in the ways that we want to is because access isn't being given equitable. Um, so like I agree with the sentiment of like free speech also the responsibility is to distribute that equally to make sure you know, black indigenous people of color are getting to say the same things that we ought to be able to say, that students are being able to talk to administration at an equal level, um, that trans senators and lawmakers are actually being allowed in courtrooms because that is not happening right now. They're actively being banned or being forced to filibuster. Um, so about it's about recognizing, I think, as your question recognizes, that the problem with what has happened is that free speech has been treated as this zero-sum commodity where some people get to have it and others don't. Um, and part of correcting that will be about correcting access, which will be a difficult thing, but is necessary. Thank you. All right, thank you for the question over here now. Yes, hello, uh, thank you guys all for coming and, and giving this talk, it was great. Um, so first, I, I'd like to extend significant deference to all of you guys' interpretation of the current state of affairs in the United States in terms of the freedom of speech that is equitably, or in our case, not equitably distributed across the population. But I, I would like to push back on the concept of value-driven approaches to free speech rules or free speech legislation. And I might posit that value-driven free speech rules is in essence a kind of oxymoron in that um, for free speech to exist, it cannot be value-driven at, at all, at least my perception of its legislation. And I'm wondering how you square that or, or square the idea of value-driven free speech rules um, with the recent AS legislation that has to do with anti-Semitism, wherein they defined anti-Semitism in a more expansive way so as to include anti-Zionism, um, and, and which has since been defined as um, concepts which delegitimize Israel. That strikes me as being something which reflects the values of the community, uh, but still limits free speech. Uh, and that's, this is just anybody who defends the value-driven approach. Um, I think I can start, but very, very briefly. First of all, um, yeah, Israel's not legitimate, and I have no problem saying that because hashtag free speech. Um, and I think that this, once again, speaks to power dynamics. There are power interests in validating Israel as a settler colonial state um, on Palestine. And I think that this is one of those moments where the idea that certain people are going to be punished for expressing their political views and some are not, um, to me, that is, that's against my personal values, um, entirely independent of what is actually being said. If there is an 
if there's an inequity in response by the institutional power broker, that is what is anathema to me about this. That like that's what's against my values. And I think that when you say something like that, like people should be assessed equally when they take similar or parallel or you know the same action, I think that a lot of people would agree with that. And that's what doesn't square with the AS legislation, which is why that piece of legislation was a mistake. And I would just add that there's already value-driven free speech in this country all the time. And what Anushika said makes perfect sense to me that until there's equal access and equality in this country and freedom in this country, by the way, these are things that are supposed to matter in terms of our ideology, but campaign finance, apparently money as a free speech issue trumps ideology at this point. But we already have value-driven free speech in this country. It just depends on what we're going to decide together really matters to us. And if we decide that equality and access really matter to us, and they're supposed to, then that becomes the foundation of how you define things like free speech. Could I ask a, a follow-up for an example of a value-driven free speech legislation uh, that, that I guess you would, su you would suggest should, should exist, normatively speaking? Yeah. Okay, y'all ever heard of the Comstock Act? You know what the Comstock Act is? Okay, it's a piece of U.S. legislation that was passed in 1873 that says that the U.S. mail shall not be used to circulate obscene materials. Um, this then translates to you can't tell people about contraceptives. And um, it was heavily implicated in the U.S. Supreme Court case Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, 1976, which is the one that overturned a Connecticut state law prohibiting uh, doctors from giving contraceptive counseling to married couples. This was a speech action. Estelle Griswold um, opened a Planned Parenthood clinic in New Haven, Connecticut, um, in order to violate <laughs> this law prohibiting contraception. She saw it as a free speech issue. She opens the clinic. She calls the cops on herself, and it's like, cops, will you please come in here and take a tour of my clinic where I'm giving out contraceptives to people so that she could trigger a lawsuit, so that she could get this law overturned. Now, that it, like the Comstock Act itself, the idea that there is a thing called obscenity that can be quantifiably defined and that it is in the best interest of society to not circulate this thing called obscenity, that is value-driven speech. Thank you so much. All right. Um, oh, can I just respond? Yeah. I, I think that your notion that there is an, an inherent conflict between the notion of value in speech and First Amendment protections. I, I think that really the mythology is with regard to content neutrality, not with regard to values. I, I, I think that content neutrality is probably the myth, not um, the fact that speech is uh, always laden with value. But the court proceeds as if content neutrality exists, and sometimes it works out. And for example, I think it will work out in the case of these students that have put on the board, um, fuck Zionism. Because there's, I would love to be their lawyer. I'm not one, but I can assure you that's a violation of the First Amendment. All right, for the sake of getting everyone a chance to ask their question, we're going to move on. Thank you to the microphone over here. Just make sure to speak directly into that mic. Hi, um, I had a question about uh, how would the panelists define hate speech exactly? and 
do they think that it should be illegal? I don't like making things illegal because then that presupposes the need for cops. Um, so that that's what I have on that, but I don't have anything else. So I'm not suggesting that this is by any means a complete definition, but I always think of hate speech as anything that is intended to harm a group, particularly that is marginalized, um, and or to incite violence. Um, it really evokes power disparities. I don't think that it should necessarily be made illegal for the same reasons that were stated of if we invoke violence or restriction, I think that can get really complicated really quickly. Um, and again, it limits dissent. I think that's less of an issue right now because dissent is not really being allowed at all, as Rick um, alluded to. Um, that being said, like, I do think there's a responsibility to acknowledge and curtail violence against groups who are vulnerable to that. And that also includes people who are just simply students or ordinary citizens. I think it's about like recognizing when speech is meant to harm rather than to inform or spread opinion. And I think that's what makes hate speech different than just freedom of speech or simply expressing what one wants to express. All right, thank you. On to this microphone over here. Hello? Oh, okay. Uh, I wanted to ask a bit of a more general question. And so um, just to sort of any of you in the panel, but um, what do you think about the rise of fascist ideology on uh, college campuses around the US and especially like coming from speakers like uh, Charlie Kirk and Milo Yiannopoulos? And um, more importantly though, how do you think we should defend ourselves and our communities from these uh, this sort of like hate speech that's uh, spewing from these people? I have thoughts, but I'm taking up a lot of space, so I just, okay. <laughs> okay, um, there's a Bangladeshi-Australian stand-up comic named Amar Rahman who has a bit about the time Richard Spencer got punched in the face. Um, and he's like, well, and invoking people who speak to him, it's like, well, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. If you punch Nazis, who's next? If you punch Richard Spencer, who's next? And then he pauses and he's like, well, hopefully more Nazis. Um, why would you only punch one Nazi? So I'm certainly not advocating physical violence. That's not a thing that we do here on camera. That wouldn't be very smart. Um, but I think that, again, going back, you don't, just because you can say whatever you want doesn't mean people have to treat you with respect. And I do think that we should all get a lot more disrespectful towards Nazis and stop pretending that under the guise of politeness, we have to invite them, we have to host them, we have to let them say all their fucked up things so they can get people to agree with them and become more Nazis. Okay, thank you. And then to the microphone over here. Um, hello? Okay. Um, the University of California at Santa Barbara is an institution that is, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to think where to begin. Um, the university should be a forum for intellectual discourse, but 
when people use the guise of intellectual discourse and opinion to spread hate speech or transgressive ideas, it makes the student body reducible to words. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering um, if it's the university's responsibility to protect the integrity of all students and create an equitable forum? Is it the job of the organization to, um, I guess, manufacture that environment? Or is it the job of the students to rise up, um, yeah, in order to uh, be actively heard? I'm sorry, is that clear? I think when it comes to this idea of the university being a forum, I feel like perhaps they're not entirely conscious that they have that responsibility because I don't think they have been. Um, I think that, however, there are a lot of organizations um, like the Nexus, for example, that take it upon themselves to be the forum. Um, I know that, I guess, everybody is entitled to have their own opinion, um, especially when it comes to even the opinion section in the Daily Nexus. Um, but you are you as an individual are entitled to have an opinion, but as a journalist, you are also entitled to inform the public accurately. Um, and I think when it comes to most public platforms, there is also hopefully that responsibility, whether you are Charlie Kirk or if you are a journalist for the Daily Nexus or if you are part of AS um, as a senator. I think, unfortunately, it's something that a lot of organizations within UCSB have had to foster organically. Um, this idea of community values and things like that. It's not something I think that UCSB has felt the onus to represent. Um, I think it's something that we've sort of had to cultivate within our own little communities and have to build coalitions in order to help foster. Um, and I think that's where a dialogue tends to result in settings like this. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think that there is, there are people I think in these spaces that act, there's people that document, there's people that spread discourse. Um, and I think, yes, in an ideal world, you can expect the organization, or I guess the institution that is UCSB to foster those ideals. But I think, I, I think it, it, was a, it was a professor in a class that I had last year that said that the term institution is oftentimes in these settings used as a derogatory term where if you label something as an institution, you are implying that there are systemic and systematic issues when it comes to limiting the rights and the opinions of the members that exist within that institution. Um, even the term institutionalized is often a derogatory term, but I, that, that's, that's what I think. I think it's as people in an institution where they have failed us oftentimes to, I guess, operate from that position of compassion, of community values, of kindness and love. I think it, for me personally, it's something that I feel pessimistic about holding them accountable for. And I think then you just sort of turn inward to the communities that you are a part of and start dialogues there and hopefully work your way up. Thank you. Yeah, and I just wanna add that um, I had the experience this quarter, last quarter, in my juvenile justice class partnering with um, uh, incarcerated man in, in Texas on death row, O.B. Weathers. And the way that he talked on the daily about love was remarkable to me. And um, reparative justice is something I think about a lot. My friend L, whose daughter was killed, 
um, loves the man who killed her. By the way, I, and I know that that's shocking for some of you to hear, but she works in prisons in California. She's from Florida. She comes out for six months at a time to hear. The men that she works with love her. They think of her as a mother and grandmother. They know Emily's story. She's constantly saying, love wins. That's what she says, love wins. And restorative justice and reparative justice are hard things to talk about, but imagine how much harder they are to talk about in a prison than they are on a campus. And yet, these men continually talk about it. And they talk about it boldly and bravely. And it is, in fact, you know, these men in this one prison on death row, and they've been with each other for a long time, and they call each other siblings, and they don't see each other. They can only talk to each other. But they found all kinds of ways of communicating with each other, including one of them who spoke Swahili, teaching everybody else how to speak Swahili. They have dates, meaning dates when they're going to be put to death. And through all of it, they literally maintain this idea of love, and they circulate it. And it is, they have worked really hard to establish it as a community value. Wouldn't it be amazing if one of the things that UCSB was known for is being the first campus to literally work hard as a campus on what that might look like, and then to, and then to try, at least try, to institute it? Thank you. All right, we unfortunately only have time for one more question, so this will be the last question of the evening. Hi there. Uh, thank you, KCSB, for putting this on. I really do appreciate it, and it was a lot of fun uh, listening to you guys talk about it. Uh, this question is a little bit more directed towards uh, Julia, I believe. Um, so throughout the conversation, uh, more right-wing speakers like Stephen Davis at Davis and Charlie Kirk were mentioned in the context of when or when not to allow certain speech on campus, especially in the aftermath of the Davis event turning uh, into violence. And I just kind of wanted to ask the question, what do you think qualifies as an incitement to violence when it comes to speech? Uh, because in, in you know the free speech legislation and, and rulings and everything that's kind of been the crucial question uh, because you specifically mentioned that when you saw the uh, you know the anti-abortion people speaking on campus that you believe they were inciting violence and that you personally would have taken the decision to have them removed yeah so I mean I don't really have like a strong legal background or anything so I can't really speak to like whether or not they could have actually been removed or how hate speech would be formally defined but I think the way I see it is um, from what I remember, we got our hands on one of the pamphlets they were giving out to people um, while they were here on campus. And they were saying something incredibly, incredibly harmful about survivors of sexual assault and even in some situations rape and saying that, um, that these people should not be entitled to making decisions related to bodily autonomy because there are now, I think the verbiage they used was um, two victims of that situation referring to the baby. So I think, I mean, yeah, right? <laughs> but um, with that, I mean, people who have already lived through these incredibly, incredibly traumatic events do not need to hear further um, 
statements like that about whether like what they can and cannot do about their body and i think to an extent that threatens a very like real lived aspect of their identity so i would i think for me in that specific situation that's how um i would class it like that's why i would classify it as free speech it's harmful and it's inciting um very problematic um uh, outcomes i guess all right and that will be the end of our question portion as well as the end of our event tonight. So thank you so much all for coming out and please give a final hand to all of our panelists. Um, say thank you to, yeah, to Anushka Halder, Chair of the Trans and Queer Commission. Julia Tamari, Director of Students for Reproductive Justice. Dan Linz, professor in the Department of Media Studies. Jana Hayter, PhD candidate in the History Department. Rick Benjamin, professor in Comparative Literature. And Devanshi Tamara, Science and Technology Editor and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Chair for the Daily Nexus. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, everybody.